This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. On previous episodes of the podcast, we spent a lot of time looking at three proof-of-concept centers created by NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. One called Nexus New York, which is based upstate, and two here in Manhattan, which are combined into an organization called PowerBridge. And as we heard, a proof of concept center is a place where academic researchers who have invented or discovered something that has the potential to be a successful commercial product can get the training and support they need to begin the process of starting businesses, taking those ideas out of the lab and putting them into the marketplace where people can actually buy them and use them. Now, NYSERDA's particular concern is what we call clean tech. Innovations that help industry to operate in a more environmentally friendly way. This is a huge concern to people in all walks of life, especially right now. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, the more energy we've produced and the more things we've built, the more pollution we've created. And it's only in the past few decades that we've even really tried to correct that. But almost everyone recognizes now that we're reaching the limits of the amount of waste the planet can safely contain, and that the high-energy, high-pollution petrochemical fuels that almost everything runs on are running out. And so the future of industry has to be in these clean tech solutions. It's a huge and complex problem. And each of the dozens of startup companies that have come through PowerBridge or Nexus is attacking it from a completely different angle. This is the first of three episodes of the podcast where we're going to meet some of those companies and look in more detail at the specific technologies that they're working so hard to bring to market. We're hoping it will be an interesting sample of the panoply of innovations that researchers around the world are bringing to this question of clean energy, and maybe even give you a sneak peek into what the world of industry might look like five or 10 years in the future. In today's episode, we're going to meet two companies who are dealing directly with the production of particular kinds of industrial waste and developing solutions for handling that waste more responsibly and economically by not just disposing of it, but actually recycling it into something useful. To start with, let's look at a company that's dealing with a kind of industrial waste that just about everyone is aware of. Carbon emissions. The vast majority of industrial processes in the world emit carbon dioxide as a waste product. And nature has a built-in system for handling the carbon emissions from things like natural fires. The carbon gas released by burning goes into the atmosphere and is then taken back up by plants, who recycle the energy for everyone to use again. But now, as just about everyone knows, we're burning so much more carbon than we ever have before in power plants, factories, cars, homes, everywhere, really, that the cycle has gotten completely out of whack. There's way more carbon being released into the atmosphere than the world's plants can handle. And the excess is playing havoc with our climate. Here's Jason Salfi, CEO of Dimensional Energy. We've kind of blown the, the carbon cycle you know, out of sync and out of balance. And we need to, sort of in an industrial setting, re- uh, establish and, and fix the existing carbon cycle as it stands today. 
To that end, what if there was a way to mimic photosynthesis inside a factory or power plant? Instead of releasing carbon into the atmosphere to capture it and turn it into something useful. That's exactly what Dimensional Energy, a company that went through the Nexus program, is aiming to do. Here's Dr. Tobias Hanrath, an associate professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at Cornell, and also Dimensional's chief scientific officer, followed by Mr. Salfi again. What we're trying to do is um, to essentially do what nature has already done in the photosynthetic systems, but with uh, materials and uh, technologies that nature hasn't had access to. The basic chemistry uh, idea is, is the same. So convert CO2 and uh, energy as an input into, into something uh, energetically more, more useful. We're developing this photothermal catalytic reactor that performs really like, uh, like a leaf. So it absorbs carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight, and then it converts those things into the food that help the plant grow through a process called photosynthesis. Similarly, um, we're developing a technology that converts carbon dioxide into liquid fuels and feedstocks um, that we believe could serve as the, the building blocks for the products that we use every day. This process they're developing begins with a massive source of carbon waste. In this case, the exhaust system of an electric power plant. The idea is to channel that waste, carbon dioxide gas, into a large reactor where two essential ingredients are added. The first being sunlight. Here's Dr. Hanrath. Imagine having like a bundle of, of tubes. We have uh, quartz rods, and you stick those into... Uh, a larger cylinder, which is known as the, the shell. So those will be uh, elements that can guide light to the inside of the reactor. Then, to the carbon dioxide and sunlight is added a catalyst, a new nanotech substance that Dimensional has developed that chemically converts those raw materials into something else, the same way plant cells convert them into carbohydrates and oxygen. Generation one, which is what we're working on now, we're essentially just coating the quartz tubes with a catalyst, painting the catalyst on the surface of the rods. Um, and in generation two, we're going to uh, essentially fluidize the catalyst, which means it's essentially um, have all of those little catalyst particles, instead of being uh, fixed on the surface of the quartz rod, uh, float and tumble around within that larger uh, reactor shell. So intent of generation two is that you have better access to the, to the catalyst. After the CO2 gas reacts to the catalyst, it's transformed into a different chemical, which can then be pumped out of the reactor, stored and used, even sold on the open market. The potential is there to transform the CO2 into all different sorts of chemicals, depending on how you design the catalyst. But at the moment, they're concentrating on things that could replace natural gas as a fuel source. So far in the lab, they've successfully produced a low-energy density form of it called syngas. But there's hope to move on to a whole range of other products. Uh, syngas is the one that we're aiming to understand at the moment. And the, the plan is that if you can, uh, if you can figure that out, then uh, whatever you learn in that process will also be helpful in, in pushing it up even further and making a range of other products. And this process is doubly effective in terms of environmental impact, 
because you're not only capturing and recycling the carbon emissions before they're released into the air, you're also using them to produce chemical ingredients that would otherwise be made using fossil fuels. Here's Mr. Selfie. Uh, many of those, those chemicals or, or final um, molecules start from, a, uh, from fossil carbon or petroleum products. Uh, so, so what we're looking at is taking carbon dioxide as sort of the, the base um, molecule um, and turn it in, turn that otherwise waste product or waste material and upcycle it into something that's useful. Let's turn our attention to a dangerous industrial waste that's much less well known than carbon gas: sulfides, which are a particularly nasty byproduct of copper mining. Now, copper is an interesting case, because in one sense, it's one of the least ecologically friendly materials there is. It's a completely non-renewable resource. The amount there is in the ground is the amount there is. And once we've mined it all, it's gone. And demand for it has gotten so high, and remains so high for so long, that all the best sources of it are pretty much used up. What's left are mining operations where people are working very hard to extract a tiny amount of copper from a huge amount of other kinds of minerals. Here's Dr. Tim Kernan, CEO of Ironic Chemicals, a company that went through the PowerBridge program. In the recent several decades, this has become more of a problem because of the declining grade of the ores, that is, the amount of metal per ton. 0.6% is the high, is the high. The average is around like 0.3% by weight. It's that small. And so the kinds of ecological problems associated with large-scale mining, digging up huge areas of forest, for instance, to get at the ground below, are going to get worse and worse when it comes to copper mines, because they're going to need more and more raw tonnage of rock to get that tiny amount of copper out. Ironically, though, Copper is absolutely necessary to all the other technologies that we think of as environmentally friendly, because it's the world's best conductor of electricity. So all the new high-tech solutions to environmental problems require huge amounts of copper to function. The Tesla has 150 pounds of copper. That's three times more, 165, three times more than your gasoline engine. There's 275 to about 500,000 tons of copper in a wind farm. And so demand for copper isn't going to go down anytime in the near future. So unless someone discovers a viable replacement, we're going to have to keep mining as much of it as we can. And so we're going to have to come up with ways to minimize the negative impacts of that mining. Probably the nastiest thing about copper mining is that copper ore is very often co-located with other minerals called sulfides. These are more or less stable and benign when they're buried deep in the ground, but when they're brought up and exposed to the air, they begin to oxidize. And when they oxidize, they turn into sulfuric acid, which then leaches out into the ground and finds its way into nearby water supplies. This is particularly bad because it doesn't just happen once. It continues to happen. Once these materials are dug up and exposed, they keep leaching toxic acids indefinitely. Uh, As long as these minerals have been dug up and exposed to the atmosphere, they're going to continue to break down. 
and that's going to continue for thousands and thousands of years. And you're going to continue to pollute freshwater supplies with, you know, these heavy toxic metals as well as acidifying them um, for perpetual future, basically. Now, the way the mining industry has traditionally dealt with this situation is to build structures called tailings dams, basically man-made toxic lakes where the sulfides are deposited and then covered with water to prevent them from oxidizing. This is better than nothing, but also deeply problematic for several reasons. First, because they inevitably leak, at least a little bit, a phenomenon known as acid mine drainage. And more dramatically, because they have to be constantly maintained to prevent them from failing catastrophically. In 2014, the tailings dam at the Mount Polly Copper Mine in British Columbia, Canada, failed, dumping 100 million cubic meters of contaminated water and another 50 million of a slurry made up of sulfides and also things like selenium and arsenic into nearby Polly Lake and the surrounding countryside. That's nearly 40 billion gallons of toxic waste. And that was from a relatively small tailings dam compared to others currently in operation. Dr. Kernan and his team at Ironic are looking for a better way. Like Dimensional is doing with CO2, they're asking the question, why throw this stuff out at all? Why not use these sulfides? Transform them into something practical instead of just letting them molder as waste products. Their inherent potential is actually really significant. Sulfide minerals on a you know, energy density basis are on par with coal. Pure sulfur, on an energy density basis is on par with glucose. There's a lot of energy in these minerals. And the approach that Dr. Kernan and his colleagues are taking to utilizing that energy is really pretty interesting because it's purely biological. Rather than reverse engineering the chemistry of living things, they're just using living things, specifically one of the simplest living things in the world, bacteria training them, if you like, through selective breeding and other genetic manipulation to create the chemical reactions that transform these sulfur wastes. Because they're so simple, typically just one cell, bacteria are remarkably efficient, remarkably hardy, and remarkably versatile. There are thousands of different types of bacteria in the world, possibly millions, and there's almost nowhere they haven't evolved to live and almost no energy source they haven't evolved to live off of. So of course, there's a particular kind of bacteria that has evolved to pull all that energy out of sulfides. So we're taking in a natural process that's going to occur, we're sticking into a closed system, adding in bacteria that accelerate that process, and then basically redirecting the energy flow to make chemicals. So we have a you know, unusual bacterium that we have developed the genetic tools to engineer, acetylthiobacillus feroxidans, that can oxidize these sulfur-containing industrial wastes. We can feed it into a bioreactor, and our bacteria will oxidize that. And then we've, you know, changed metabolism so that they can produce useful chemicals. Now, the very first product they could make, interestingly, is the very one they're trying to prevent from leaching out into the environment sulfuric acid. By speeding up the natural process of oxidation and doing it in a controlled way, 
this acid could be produced more quickly in greater quantities and in a form pure enough to be used in industrial processes. Because you know, sulfuric acid is, well, the most important industrial chemical. It's consumed at a massive scale worldwide to make fertilizer and do chemical catalysis. Um, you know, it's essential. You can't make gasoline, basically, or other fuels from crude without some sulfuric acid catalysis occurring in the middle. But also, by manipulating the genetics of these bacteria, you can cause them to create a huge range of other industrially useful chemicals from the raw materials in this sulfide wastewater. They've already made a handful in the laboratory, and the potential for more is vast. We've identified over 20 different molecules that should reasonably be easy to make or have already been identified in the species so that maybe you don't pick that exact molecule, but you pick something that is that class. And so you can, you can make those sort of molecules. And that's a broad range of things from fuels to intermediate, intermediate value chemicals used in plastics and other polymers to um, pharmaceutical um, you know, intermediates, things, things like that you use for, for drug making. And so, like what dimensional energy is doing with carbon gas, Ironic Chemicals is attacking the problem of sulfur waste in a way that offers environmental benefits on several levels at once. Now you're taking this toxic waste, you're removing it from the environment, and you're producing value-added chemicals that can offset our needs for the fossil fuel derivatives. So you're, you're impacting you know, the environmental slash social good side of the equation on multiple angles. And importantly, what each of these companies are developing would not only be better environmentally, they would be better for the bottom line of their respective industries. By working alongside existing infrastructure rather than trying to replace it, they would handle these waste products in a way that lowers costs and creates additional value without disrupting the underlying production of energy and copper. One of the things that is sort of neat about our approach right now, especially in these early stages, uh, while you're still proving and validating the you know, economic case for this, is that we don't need our first customers to change anything about what, we, what they actually do. Here's Mr. Salfi. Many industries have been the same for, you know, close to 100 years now. And so we really want to build something that taps into all that existing infrastructure and dovetails well with all the capital that's already been deployed. And while both of these systems are several years away from being up and running in the field, both are head and shoulders above what is currently available in the market. Generally speaking, carbon dioxide is, is just um, emitted directly into our atmosphere. And there aren't very many deployed carbon sequestration uh, systems in, in, in operation. Generally speaking, they're, they're very expensive uh, to deploy. They're, they're in, you know, in the billions of dollars potentially in, in capital costs. And um, they're also uh, quite parasitic on the, um, say, power plant that they're situated next to. So they could take up to 30% of the energy that's actually created at a, at a, at a power plant to, to operate and get the CO2 concentrated out of flue gas itself. So um, they're, they're expensive to deploy, expensive to operate. And so that's why we've seen sequestration, I think, stall, and why there's actually a new thrust towards utilization of that carbon dioxide, because you can't really solve the carbon dioxide emissions problem without doing something actually with that carbon dioxide. 
all the alternative technologies that are out there are basically, well, we'll, we'll store them some way. And our point is, well, don't store them. Why? Because these are actually really high energy dense materials. Then you're talking about the potential to allow them to shift to a low cost, you know, waste disposal sort of strategy, which can save you tens to hundreds of millions, if not, you know, many more over the lifetime of the mine. And then where we really, you know, in terms of how this makes money in the next five to 10 years, it's those those chemical sales. So you're making useful chemicals that are, you know, on the price point of copper. Copper's about $5,000 a ton. So if you're making a chemical that's around that price point or higher, I mean, we think we can make um, the precursor to statins, which is worth half a million dollars a ton. And as we look towards the future, both of these technologies could be integral parts of large-scale infrastructure for handling dangerous wastes on a national or even global scale. The other idea is, and this is starting to come about through um, a couple of other uh, large uh, petrochemical companies are looking at the idea of actually creating a carbon dioxide pipeline that would uh, that would deliver carbon dioxide to um, all sorts of locations around the country, and uh, so it wouldn't necessarily tie the conversion of carbon dioxide to the point source, but could could allow conversion to happen where the, the, the products are needed that come from the conversion process. It is a lot of infrastructure and, and, and piping, you know, piping gases around, uh, you know, will have its, you know, uh, challenges. But, um, but it could, you know, could be a part of what, what enables this, this whole economy to evolve. In upcoming episodes of the podcast, we'll be looking at how four other companies that went through the Nexus and PowerBridge programs are developing technologies that attack this big clean tech question from a wide variety of other angles. From developing nanostructures to building better batteries and wind turbines to predicting the weather. So stay tuned to see even more of the future of industry and the environment and how they might finally be learning to work together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman. Special thanks to the experts who we interviewed, Jason Salfi and Dr. Tobias Hanrath of Dimensional Energy and Dr. Tim Kernan of Ironic Chemicals. To learn more about the Nexus and PowerBridge programs, visit www.nexus-ny.org and www.powerbridgeny.org. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media, at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram, or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.